Hey fellow nerds, I'm Megan Smiley and this is the Lawyer's Escape Pod. For those of you who've gotten into practice, looked around and thought, so this is my life? I get it. You're in deep and you feel stuck. You may have no idea what the next step would be, or maybe you have an idea, but think it's unrealistic. I truly believe that there's a path forward for each of us if we're intentional about finding it. And this podcast will be a great source of advice and inspiration for you to make that leap to a more fulfilling career. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. My guest is David Johnson. He is a lawyer, writer, and professor at Stanford Law School. He started his career working primarily in-house at tech companies, uh, received his JSM in law, science, and technology, and now, among other things, teaches a course on design thinking uh, as applied to negotiations at Stanford Law. Dave talks to us first a little bit about how he got into academia outside the tenure track and gives us some great tips around finding adjunct professor positions, um, which can be sort of an interesting side job for practicing lawyers if it's something that has occurred to you. Uh, Listen in for those tips. Then we move on and David lays out the framework uh, for using design thinking to help move you towards a fulfilling career shift. So I think it's a really interesting discussion here to talk about design thinking. Um, You know, as lawyers, we're taught a very different kind of thinking. It's sort of linear and logical and right and wrong answers in many cases. Um, And the core of design thinking is really more creative and web thinking approach, um, iterative approach to working through problems. And one thing he really gets into is... um, specifically something I know I don't love and I think a lot of us don't love and keeps us fairly stuck is ambiguity. And working through ambiguity is sort of explicitly part of the design thinking process. Um, You know, I think we get stuck in the what do I want? How would I even get there? And rather than being paralyzed by that ambiguity, um, he talks about acknowledging it and really allowing yourself to move through it. So I think that is really a valuable way to think about things. And he really lays out a whole framework. It's like incredibly juicy. You should absolutely listen to the whole thing. I think it is really a framework that you can take and run with um, while thinking through sort of what to do. Um, And another theme of this episode that I sort of wanted to highlight is just that idea of allowing yourself to take steps, even when you aren't entirely sure where they'll lead, that that's okay. And even if they lead nowhere, it's okay. You've, you've done something. Um, but more likely than not, it will. And you really want to put yourself out there and allow serendipity to find you. So uh, it's a great episode. And I hope you enjoy. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Megan. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. No, I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, but I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about your your background and your career path um, to where you are now. Okay. In a word, peripatetic. But <laughs> let me start with, with this. I started practicing law in Miami as a trial lawyer uh, in the 80s. I did 10 years there. Um, 
and I knew I was going to leave at uh, some point just because I was not from Florida and I was from the West Coast. I knew I wanted to go back to the West Coast. At one point, I just decided now's the time and uh, figured out how am I, how am I going to get back to the West Coast? Well, I knew I'd have to take a bar exam mm-hmm. uh, to practice in another state. I knew that would take a year. So I figured why not do uh, another degree? Uh, I could do an LLM in a year or so uh, and make it sync up. Mm-hmm. So I applied around mostly in the West Coast, ended up getting um, uh, an opportunity at Stanford. I grabbed it and came out to California, came out to Stanford uh, without even realizing that that's where Silicon Valley was, to yeah. be honest, and <laughs> came out and uh, did exactly that. Uh, did my degree, did my thesis, uh, did the bar, went to practice in um the booming Silicon Valley legal yeah. marketplace for and what was that degree time. in? What was your LLM in? Uh, t- technically, it's a okay. JSM, but yeah. it was in law, science, and technology. I focused on uh, environmental law, specifically international environmental law, because that's where I wanted to go practice. Mm-hmm. And here's the interesting thing. Even though I had 10 years of trial experience, I had a degree from Stanford in uh, environmental law. I could not find a job in environmental law. Wow. Anywhere now, granted, the period of time in the early '90s was uh, a, a downturn in the legal markets overall. But the only job offer I got was an internship at the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund. And the guy that called me up from Skoldef was embarrassed to make the phone call, but he said, "You know, I need. I'm going to tell you about this, <laughs> right? <laughs> because I feel obligated Looking to tell you because we'd love to have you like, on board. <laughs> would you like to be our intern? Yeah. <laughs> would you like to be our intern? Yeah. Uh, he goes, you know, obviously you won't be an intern, but that's really all we got for thirty-five thousand a year, which wasn't the issue, but yeah. it just didn't seem like the right thing to do at the time. And so yeah. uh, I went and. I got more uh, serious experience, uh, albeit not in environmental law, uh, when I jumped into law firms and ultimately GC. So I did uh, five GC jobs across 15, 20 years in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, the opportunity arose through a friend of a friend <clears throat> to interview for a part-time teaching post at the law school. Mm-hmm. Um my alma mater, technically speaking, I guess, uh, Stanford Law School, and uh, got the opportunity to teach negotiation, a basic negotiation seminar there, mm-hmm. and um, did that. And that is how I started into academia, although I guess technically the advanced degree was really the start. But right. Um, so I had a little bit of writing, legal writing in my background, and now I'm starting to do a little bit of teaching. But, you know, Bear in mind that being a lecturer is the same as being an adjunct professor. It is not right. tenure track. It is not tenure. You're not called a professor. And the members of the tenured faculty make very, very certain that we are very, very <laughs> clear on that fact. <laughs> I, I know this well, having worked at a, at a law school for almost a decade. And, yeah. and my father is now a, a, in that same boat teaching tax law after a career of practicing tax law. And he's like, there's yeah. a definite hierarchy. <laughs> there, there he is. But that said, you know, they're, they're not trying to, 99% of the faculty are not trying to, you know, push us down personally. Yeah. They just want to make sure that we understand there's experiential teaching, which is what we do and we do well. And yeah. they know that. Yeah. And they do academic stuff and academics, not only do scholarship, but they also run the university. 
So, or run the law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people don't realize universities are divided into sort of two, two very distinct silos. There's the academic silo and there's the administrative silo. Mm-hmm. And for the senior positions in administrative in the administrative silo, those actually are, you know, faculty. Right. Deans and, and, and presidents are almost always faculty, but it's the faculty senate, the tenured faculty that make all the decisions about the university. They run the shop. And so that's what they're really driving at is where this is this is our shop, even right. though we hide in our offices and, and uh, barely come out in, you know, in the light of day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, I, you know, I respect them immensely because I respect their minds. But, uh you know, there's a huge difference, as you know, as, as all the lawyers right. listening know, there's a huge difference between practicing law and knowing how to practice law, knowing how to try a lawsuit and opining on Judge What's-His-Name's dissent in the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals about a trial that right. happened 10 years ago. <laughs> right, right. But both are important. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> we, need, we need both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, it's true. I, and I think and I think there has been a growing appreciation for adding in these practical pieces, right? You know, I think even when I was in law school, um, I guess like 15 years ago, um, it, uh, it, I don't remember there being as much of an emphasis on it as I have seen sort of more recently in, in sort of no, bringing in adjuncts on, on these really sort of practical um, levels. There wasn't. And I'm glad you bring this up. Um, and I want to make this point really firmly for your audience because the, there's, there's, I believe, big opportunity for lawyers who are practicing now to approach law schools and suggest – you don't have to be asked – you can approach a local law school and suggest that you're available, that you would like to learn how to teach. Don't, don't create the impression that you already know how to teach. Mm. Be very humble about it because te- learning to teach really is important. Having been a practitioner isn't the same as knowing how to teach it, but you yeah. can learn how to teach it. But make yourself available, make yourself known at your local law school. And here's the reason. There's more and more opportunity to do it mm-hmm. because the ABA about five years ago was under so much pressure from companies and law firms that the law students coming out of the out of schools were completely incapable of doing <laughs> anything. Exactly. In fact, as a client myself, I got to a point where I would refuse to pay for first year student, first year associates right. to sit on pretty much any case if, if I had to pay them $350 an hour to do it. Yeah. And so law firms wanted students to have more experiential learning in law schools. The ABA passed a rule. Every ABA accredited school now requires uh, students to have eight credits of experiential learning, and it's very carefully defined. And this is where there is the growing need for uh, practitioners to come in and teach experiential courses. You may only get one course one year. You may get one course every other year, something like that. But if you have a specialty and it's ex- and it meets the criteria of experiential, then uh, such as negotiation, trial, uh, any kind of clinic, then uh, there's an opportunity to get your toes wet in teaching law students and doors open from there. So uh, I think yeah. that's really worth thinking about. Yeah. And I saw that from, you know, I worked within the sort of the LLM office and because we sometimes had special classes largely for international LLM students, but, you know, these topics of, you know, specific 
um, for the LLM classes, we often had to go out and find people to teach sections of these classes ourselves. And I just know that there really um, was a market for that um, without you know, just doing it on the side. It doesn't, you don't have to, you know, full-fledged transfer <laughs> careers to, 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 to check it out. It's just an opportunity to, to play with if you're interested in, if you think you might be interested in teaching. Yeah. And, and I think it, the, the thing I really liked about it is it opened other doors. Yeah. Uh, you know, having a, an affiliation with a law school puts you in touch with an entirely new network of people. Uh, it can position you if you want to, to move over towards, uh, a consulting gig, uh, yeah. as opposed to a full-time law firm gig. Uh, there's lots of different places to go. Uh, once you sort of can add the credential of, uh, the law school, the local law school, yeah, uh, yeah. to your, uh, resume. So how did that sort of position grow for me? So it sounds like you started sort of on an adjunct basis, but you've now developed into this, you know, full-time academic, yeah, I, um, I, I still, I wouldn't say I'm still, I'm full time now. It's, yeah. it's more than part time, but it's not entirely full time. So mm-hmm. here's how it fo- unfolded for me. Um, I got the invitation to teach. I taught one, I, thir- I think maybe two years while I was still working at companies. Mm-hmm. And then um, the company I was with got acquired and which is the nature of the business when you're, when you're the in-house lawyer for companies <laughs> right. that get acquired, you are out of work. Uh, uh, usually not always, but usually. Yeah. And, uh, so I decided, uh, I'm going to take a year off and I just finagled an office at, at the law school, because uh, I'd been teaching there a couple of years, finagled an office, and I just went full time every day into the school and started working harder on the course I was teaching. Then it was the era of the MOOC. I don't know if you remember massive open online courses sort of mm-hmm. really got hot in 2013, 2014. So I decided, yes. well, I'm going to make a MOOC on negotiation. And it turned out to be the first one in the world wow. uh, to go up online and I used NovoEd as a platform. I talked to Coursera, but NovoEd was the better platform. Mm-hmm. And uh, guess what happened? It, you know, I ran it once or twice and globally for free and got about 5,000, 7,500 students each time, which was not wow. big numbers compared to some other uh, uh, MOOCs that were uh, being proffered out of Stanford. But uh, it was getting good traction. Yeah. And lo and behold, General Electric contacted me through NovoEd and said, we'd like to license your course. So they licensed wow. it once per quarter for five straight years for their in-house executive education program. I didn't plan that. I didn't I know. expect that's it. The, that's so amazing. That's the thing is you could never have <laughs> put that into to yeah. motion on purpose. <laughs> yeah. And if they said make a course for General Electric, I would have made a different course. Right. I thought it was too beginner level. And they said, no, 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 we've walked through it. This is not too beginner level for the people that we intend to be the audience in this. And so yeah. I didn't make a lot of money on it, but I made some. But the but the 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 power of that story to me is and it's something we teach at the D school. Don't think too hard about where it's going to take you. If it's something you want to do, just do it. Yes. And then (laughs) put it out there. And sometimes good things will happen. Sometimes they won't. But uh, at the worst case scenario, you've you've done something and you've put it into the world. Uh, You know, it's uh, 
I like yep. that line from the Johnny Cusack movie. Um, you know, there's no, there, you've at least put something of yours into the world and there's a lot to be said for doing just that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's so, how I ended up doing this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so, the second, can I, can yeah. I just, the second piece yes. of this story, which is, is really powerful, I think is as I was sitting down at my desk thinking, okay, it's, this is just me and I want to own the copyright to all of the work I'm doing on this MOOC. So I'm not going to use any Stanford resources. Uh, so I'm going to do this on my own. So I started looking around at other people around Stanford who had put MOOCs up already. And one of them was this uh, adjunct professor over at the Institute of Design, what we call the D School at Stanford, the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design. And uh, Hasso Plattner is a founder of SAP, uh, obviously a billionaire and big in into software design and engineering. So he funded the D school there and also at his home university in Potsdam, uh, Germany. So, uh, I finagled because I was just physically on campus, uh, a seat at a meeting, uh, that was going around for faculty who were doing MOOCs mm -hmm. and met, Leticia, who is the woman who had done the MOOC that caught my attention and started chatting her up about what's it like to do a MOOC? I'm doing one. I don't know really, blah, blah, blah. She yeah. said, let's have coffee. I'll tell you all about it. We had coffee. Uh, I started working on the MOOC, asked her a few follow-up questions. She goes, you know what? We should do something together. Yeah. And I said, okay. And so we, uh, agree we decided to what I call because we have a linear accelerator on campus, I, call, I called it smashing negotiation into design thinking and seeing what sparks fly. And yeah. she says, perfect. I love it. So we, we started working on that project. And we, we now have been teaching for five years a full credit, two credit uh, course called Negotiation by Design, Applied Design Thinking for Negotiators over at the D School, which is how I ended up as a lecturer also at the D School and yeah. now deeply immersed in design and design thinking as well. And so, you know, I, I, won't, I don't like to use the word serendipity, but there was an element of serendipity there. It's really more amount of, a of intention. Yeah. I knew I wanted to be attached to the D school in some fashion. I had mm -hmm. gone over to a couple of their public meetings. I'm a pretty timid guy, even though it may not sound like it. I'm a pretty timid guy when it comes to introducing myself into spaces and networks that I have. I do. I know nobody. Yeah. I am the world's worst cocktail party guest. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and everybody out there knows what that feels like, even if you're the best cocktail yeah, party guest. Absolutely. We all know what that, that, what that feels like. So, um, it was a matter of, you know, me sitting in my office on one half, one side of the campus, just in, you know, sort of having this subconscious intention. I need to find a way to get myself uh, involved with the D school in some fashion, doesn't matter what fashion. And it just happened to be this was the pathway. Yeah. And it turned into something also just like uh, the MOOC had its own direction. All my affiliation with Leticia had its own direction. And we've been doing projects uh, outside, uh, you know, consulting for uh, Google and YouTube and uh, Medallia and other companies uh, in exactly that space. So yeah. again, the purpose is, is I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm trying to explain the, what the, the model that worked for me and I think works for a lot of people is find, you know, develop a sense 
of where you might want to be, even if it's a vague sense, mm-hmm. and intend yourself in that direction. Yep. And yep. see what happens. Grab the opportunity when it comes, no matter how small, and see what comes of it. You know, leverage yeah. it. Yeah. So I love that. I could not agree more. Um, you know, I think a lot of lawyers want you to, you know, we're used to having answers that there's sort of a right and a wrong <laughs> and there's a, there's a clear path, you know, especially to becoming a lawyer, right? There is a fairly clear path. And I mm-hmm. think that's sort of the mindset that a lot of lawyers are in. And, mm-hmm. and what you're talking about is sort of, instead of like the legal mindset, it's more the, the design mindset. Uh, it is the design mindset, um, which I will add, you know, I studied design, no small amount of design when I was doing my thesis at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't bore you with how that happened, but uh, software design, the theory of software design, not the not the doing of software. Yeah. And uh, it proved to be uh, very rich in uh changing the way I thought about practicing law. And so, um, yeah, it is design. And, um, you know, before we got on air here, I jotted down some notes about what, what would I do with the design knowledge I now have? What would I do with that if I found myself, as I have a couple of times in my career, in a situation where I'm not happy doing what I'm doing, uh, it was good while it lasted, or maybe it wasn't quite so good, but I did it anyway. So what would I do with design knowledge if I wanted to make a move forward to improve my situation, life, happiness, et cetera, et cetera? So if I can, I'll just walk through the thoughts that I had that are that come straight out of the yeah. the design world and the design what we call the design abilities. And um, we can we can sort of chat about that. Yeah, that'd be great. So we have something called the journey map, which we use at the D school. And I don't think anybody at the D school actually invented it, but we certainly have it refined to our own purposes, something called a journey map. And it's exactly what it sounds like. An individual uh, sits down and sometimes it's a team of people uh, and map the journey of some user, some person. They're common actually in the tech business because uh, companies that have tech products like to write, build journey maps of the user experience mm-hmm. uh, with the product because it helps them understand where the user is getting bumped out, where the user is uh, embracing the product, et cetera, et cetera. It's a learning tool. Yeah. Um, so we use journey maps also for people, including, guess what, ourselves. So I would, I, I jotted down this idea. Uh, this is what I would do if I was uh, sort of trying to process my way through this, through the, uh, a situation. I would think about three journey maps for myself, the three being different time scales. Uh, I would do high school until now, and then law school until now, and then I would go back to my last one or two law jobs mm-hmm. up until now. And say, call that, you know, somewhere between two to five years, let's say. Yeah. And on that, you just draw it out on a piece of paper. On that line, I would uh, capture 
points on that line where I had good experiences, good life experiences, bad life experiences, and maybe some notable but but neutral life experiences. Just capture the highlights. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to find they're of, of a different character. So high school to now might capture, you know, when I met my wife, when we got married, uh, that sort of thing. Law school to now might might be more about how did I do in school? How did I feel about law practice in school? Did I want to do it? What was my first job like, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you've done sort of the first iteration, then layer in the relevant third parties, if you haven't already, layer in the relevant third parties. And for this application, I would focus on uh, the shorter, the near-term time uh, uh, journey map, the last couple of law jobs up until now. Layer in the relevant third parties, the third parties that created good experiences, created bad experiences, uh, and also layer in uh, populate your journey map with opportunities that you think in retrospect you missed, good mm-hmm. opportunities that in retrospect you missed. Then at the end of each of the map, but particularly the third one, the, the near-term map, maybe give yourself a, a, a number grade on the scale of one to 10, say, of you know how much personal growth you felt for, for each of those three maps. How much happiness did you uh, uh, find in each of those three maps, and then any other metric that that pops up off the page and is relevant to you. Mm-hmm. And these journey maps are all obviously backward looking. Right. And sometimes uh, people have a sort of immediately negative or pejorative sense of, oh, well, that's backward looking. That can't be any at all uh, of any use. Well, the thing about backward looking is we're capturing data where we 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 have the the ability to really. Uh, put our arms around and understand what actually occurred. It's the reality. And by parsing that reality into uh, mapping it and then parsing it, we we get a better understanding of what we are all about, uh, yeah. the things that we like professionally, the things that we dislike professionally and personally. So that's let's call that module one, journey mapping uh, backwards. Yeah. Next, the more interesting thing I think is based on that, we're going to do a future journey map. Write a journey map. You could do two or three of them if you want, like from now out X years, let's say five, and then out 10 and then out 15 if you want. You know, I'm always moved, in fact, operating right now uh, on the idea that's attributed to Bill Gates, but he didn't come up with it. The idea that people vastly overestimate what they can do in one year and they vastly underestimate what they're capable of doing in 10 years. To me, this idea really holds a lot of power because I was always doing it wrong. And uh, I've now realized that I need to have a a, a sort of a 10-year view. I'm in the process of writing my first book and I'm expecting to write three or four across 10 years. And that framework really makes a difference in how I approach the first book. and also any anxiety I have about whether that book is even successful or not. Yeah. Um, so next you do a forward-looking journey map, but populate those forward journey maps what, over whatever time frame you think is most relevant or maybe a couple of time frames. Populate that journey map with the positive data points that you pulled from your historical, your backward-looking. 
pull the opportunities that you think you may have missed that were positive opportunities, pull the positive uh, third parties you were involved with in the, in the past and pull them forward into the journey map. So if one of the positive people is a great high school uh, teacher, for example, yeah. or a great law school professor. You don't have to actually pull that professor forward into your future map. Pull what that professor stood for or taught you or emanated, what what that pr- professor gave you, and put that as a characteristic on your forward-looking journey map. Mm. And, make, and then you make inferences. Now you've mapped what good stuff you've pulled forward that, that tells you what lights up your brain, what lights up your heart yeah. and start making inferences from there about right. what might the future hold. And then module three uh, involves something that we call navigating ambiguity. It's one of uh, the eight design abilities that we teach. And in my view, probably the most important, perhaps the overarching design ability. Yeah. And when it comes to ambiguity, uh, we, our way of thinking about it is endure, engage, embrace. So when we, any of us, faces ambiguity. And there's a lot of it, certainly in negotiation. <laughs> uh, and I teach this in, in my negotiation classes, um, but also in the practice of law. And when you're in a situation where you're in law and you're trying to move forward into something bigger, better, which may have some law relationship with it, it may not. Right. Um, there's a lot of ambiguity there. Right. So the way we think about it is step one is by definition enduring ambiguity. You're in the ambiguity, you have to endure it, which is to say, don't run away from it. Don't try and hide hide from it. Don't try to run around it. Don't chase certainty uh, in, in sort of an irrelevant space as just a comfort zone when you know the ambiguity is, is still all around you. Yeah. Uh, so to me, that would be the... A uh, law firm lawyer who hates their practice, but the fear uh, and ambiguity of trying to find a path forward to improve their life, their situation is so frightening, so big, so scary that they simply just hide in the the day to day of uh, of the reality that they know, the certainty that they have. If I show up to work and I do some work and I bill some hours, I'll get a paycheck and, and right. we end up uh, going down the same old status quo road. Yep. Um, the next step is uh, engaging the ambiguity, being comfortable with not knowing. It's really about moving ourselves into the ambiguity and understanding that it exists, feeling, you know, dampening our anxiety about uh, the existence of the ambiguity. And this is where I go back to that word intention. When I was at Stanford and I knew I wanted to be involved with the D school, uh, it was unclear. It was entirely unclear how it was going to happen, how I could make it happen, what really could happen uh, to move the ball forward. And I just made up my mind somehow or another, I'm going to keep my mind open and somehow or another, I'm going to find a way to, uh, 
I won't say insinuate myself, but at least finagle yeah. meetings with people who were there. And in fact, that is what happened. And then the third E is embrace. And this is, this is the place that you want to be. And for me, uh, the way to embrace ambiguity, uh, sort of metaphorically throw your arms around it, uh, is to develop a heightened awareness. It's like being lost in the woods, uh, perhaps. And if you really are, I've never been truly lost in the woods, so I'm envisioning this here. But mm -hmm. if you really are, I think you stop and look around and suddenly, if you can overcome the fear, which is the engage piece, that you start looking around and you really develop a sense of where you are at that moment. The animals, the sun, the trees, water, or the absence of water, weather, you know, the materials you have with you, all of those things all of a sudden com com become completely more important because you have now the need to survive and get uh, found again, yeah. um, either by yourself or by others. And so a heightened awareness in the midst of ambiguity to me is the most important tool. And we have mechanisms by, by way, the way we, we teach this, but uh, I think people can figure it out. And with that heightened awareness, what I would do now is reach back to that future map, that future journey map, yeah. and start what we call ideating, spinning lots of possible paths. You're looking at your journey map. You've identified things uh, or characteristics of work, personal life, et cetera, that are positives for you and start spinning ideas about what you could do. doesn't have to be realistic. When we start ideating, they can be completely unrealistic ideas. You know, it could be, I want to become the general counsel of SpaceX. Yeah. Well, okay, that's fine. You might not have the resume that's going to get you that job, but that doesn't matter. Just start ideating. And, uh, and if it's not a law job, it's something else. And jot down 20, 40 different ideas about things that, that you feel would be fruitful paths or endpoints. It could mm -hmm. be the path to something or it could be the actual job or situation that you want, volunteering, starting a, uh, doing a startup, et cetera, et cetera, and jot all those down. The purpose is not at this moment to capture the actual answer of what you're going to do or what you're going to aim at. The, the purpose is to reset your mind to have a much, much broader scope of what we call the solution space. You're pushing out the ed, the boundaries of the solution space by putting down on paper all of these uh, ideas that may or may not even be remotely realistic. You know, yeah. uh, one of them one of them might require you to have you know twenty million dollars in the bank, and if you know you don't have twenty million dollars in the bank, you can't you, you simply can't do it. But put it down on the page anyway, and. Uh, you know, I told, I told a friend of mine once 20 years ago when we were talking about the lottery, he goes, what would you do if you could win the lottery? I say, I'd quit practicing law and I would start my own uh, nonprofit legal services law firm and I'd, I'd distribute offices all over the country and uh, do pro bono work for people who were in need. 
you know, and I didn't have the money to do it. That's because <laughs> that's why it was the answer to the lottery question. Right. Um, but in the back of my mind, it's always been there and it's still there as a possibility right. of what I might do. So now that you've ideated out, now look at uh, the ideas that might be a little bit more realistic. Pick one, doesn't matter which one. Um, but you can immediately come up with two or three reasons why, ah, that won't work. Okay. Now you're well, in lawyers a- Lawyers are so good at that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's why this piece is, is, yeah. is in here. And, and, this, and I'm getting to the tail end of it. So you pick one of those and now you're looking at a more focused process and you're going to ideate again, but you're going to ideate against just that particular solution. So let's say, for example, it was, I want to start a nonprofit law firm to uh, help people with uh, ridiculous medical bills because, Mm -hmm. you know, from, I I was the GC in a company that worked in uh, hospital uh, uh, finance. So I know how that system works. And that's an area I think that is in rich need of pro bono work. Yeah. Uh, And you can really change people's lives. So ideate on that, which is, okay, uh, how do I do that? Well, here's the problem. I don't have the money to do that. Well, pound on that problem. I can raise money. I can can, uh, get funded. I could work for a hospital part-time and and get paid to solve some of these problems for them, et cetera, et cetera. or I could go work for a nonprofit that does this and uh, keep repeating the ideation until you have dissolved or at least come up with a tentative answer to all of the obstacles that you could come up with. Yeah. You've now yeah. distilled down to a possible realistic solution that you can then weigh. And if you can generate four or five of those possible realistic solutions and you can weigh and balance them against one another, you have made, you have emerged from ambiguity. Right. And you are now looking at concrete possible paths forward. Yeah. I, that's amazing. I love what you just laid out because I think lawyers in particular, you know, from my experience, my personal experience and my experience working with lawyers facing this kind of ambiguity of where do you go next? It's deeply uncomfortable, right? (laughs) Because we're not used to not having the answers. And I think um, legal training doesn't really tend, I mean, it's it's amazing that this is now part of what you're teaching um, at, at Stanford Law School. But I think this kind of thinking isn't necessarily something we've been taught <laughs> of how to sort of take this ambiguity and really sort of work through it to the point of coming to clarity. Um, I think lawyers really just want, um, well, I think they really want to um, think very linearly and very logically. And there's, this is a bit more web thinking about it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We're actually trained in the opposite. Yeah. When we went to law school, we were trained. This would have been this would have been an F paper on an exam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're trained to say there's there's no ambiguity here. Here's the rule. Right. Here are the facts. There may be some contentiousness, some disconnect amongst the facts presented, but the facts that emerge, you know, successful, are then 
analyzed by this rule and then drop an equal sign and you have your result. That's that's what they train us to do. And that's not wrong per se because that's how law functions. Yeah. Uh, and then it depends on which role you play in the legal system as to how you work with that fundamental equation. Right. But uh, you're right. We don't... We, <laughs> We don't teach that at the law school, and so uh, it's a little bit of an uphill climb for me to even bring it into the law school. Uh, but my workaround is I teach it at the D school and invite the law school students to come over. Right, right. <laughs> and they do. And they do. <laughs> they absolutely do. Yeah, um, yeah. And- I think it's just a reminder that um, I think when you go to law school and you're working in 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 the law, it becomes a bit of a bubble. And there is this assumption that the way that we approach solving, pro- solving problems is the way to solve problems. And just opening your mind to sort of alternative ways of problem solving is itself a really important lesson. I mean, if you're, you know, I, I don't want to harp on this, but if you're a litigator in a major litigation, you could journey map your litigation. Let's yeah. say you're halfway through a three-year litigation journey map the, the half, the, the, the historical part, and then use the data from what's happened up to that point, and then map what uh, the forward map would look like that, that ends up uh, with a favorable result for you and your client. And you can, you can learn a lot about what are the right and wrong moves. You can learn a lot about how to... Um, design a process that gets you to where your journey map, your forward journey map shows you you should be. Uh, And, you know, we believe a lot, as you might, might now tell, we believe a lot in this idea of mapping. It's, it's not magic, but what it does is it concretizes abstract thinking. We have these things in our minds abstractly and lawyers work with abstraction really well. And, Getting it down on the page and forcing ourselves to to, to notate it uh, concretizes it, and it makes it easier to analyze. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's just a really valuable um, approach, and I, I thank you so much for taking the time to sort of map that out and and tell me and my listeners sort of in such detail, the process that one might go through to apply this kind of thinking to this particular problem that so many lawyers are, are facing. I, I, you know, I'm happy to do it. And, and I'm glad you asked because, uh, asked me to come on the show because you know what? I've been there. I left my law practice of 10 years in Miami. Um, and I knew it was time and I knew that I'd gotten most out of it that I was going to get out of it. And the rest of it was going to be repetitive of what I already done. And I don't like repetition of the same old, same old. Uh, I'm the kind of person who moves away from something I'm done with, even if I don't know exactly where I'm going now, going next, um, which is in, you know, in essence, throwing myself deeply and fully into the ambiguity of what's next. Right. uh, Right. And trusting that you can find your way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the trusting that you can find your way. I think, um, particularly if it's someone's first career move, um, it, it can be hard to trust that you will find your way, but I think your story also, um, shows what, what I'm always saying is that, 
you can go through this process and find your next best step, but it doesn't mean it's your last step, right? You, you'll probably have to go through this process again mm. and that's okay. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always told myself, no matter what I was, was doing was this is never, I've never had the idea that any job or uh, undertaking I was doing was, was it was the last yeah. one. Yeah. I always assumed there's something beyond that. Yeah. Even if it, whether it was true or not didn't matter. It was about having my mindset that there was something further, yeah, uh, absolutely. up and to the right, as we like to talk, like <laughs> we like to say in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. All graphs need to go up and to the right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, listen. Thank you so much, Dave. This has been like a total pleasure. I'm obsessed with this whole sort of line of thinking and approaching. So it's been a lot of fun personally for me to have this conversation. Good. If, if you could sort of give one piece of advice or I don't know if there's a, a book or a website or something or something that, you know, of yours that you could point us in the direction of for people who sort of are curious about this and would want to learn more. Hmm. Um, the first place I send people almost routinely is the website for the Stanford D School. Mm-hmm. You just Google Stanford Institute of Design or D School, and you'll you'll get there. They have a public library that they actually just started about a year ago with artifacts and all kinds of stuff about design, design thinking, and how we teach it. And for no other reason than just to get a handle on. Uh, what design thinking is and and how it can uh, sort of incite, excite creativity because we Mm. all have creativity in us. Sometimes it's dormant. And um, so I think going there and then letting your mind wander based on your personal experience, letting your mind wander with the things that you read uh, in the library there can be a really valuable uh, tool. Yeah. and a book, the book I, I told a student this last week who insisted on having a face-to-face meeting with me after uh, spring term was over and before he graduated. Yeah. Uh, and I respect that. I, I, I do. He's a great kid. And I, the book I told him, you must read. It's not optional. I'm assigning you this book <laughs> is called Give and Take by Adam Grant from Wharton Business School. Uh, some of your listeners may already have read this book. Some of them may at least know of Adam Grant. Give and Take is a really, really nicely done book that talks about uh, optimal way to network for your own gain while giving at the same time. Great. Well, thank you again, Dave. This is really so much fun, and I really appreciate your taking time out of what I know is a busy schedule to have this conversation (laughs) with me. It's my pleasure. (laughs) Thank you.